programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting the regional premiere of Peter and the Starcatcher, with seven other productions through October 2013 in Cedar City. www.bard.org Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to talk about a new play by award-winning Utah playwright Deborah 3D. Underground is the name of the play. It'll have its world premiere in southern Utah tonight and then the next two days at the Kayenta Outdoor Theater in Ivans. The subject is especially important and topical one to many of us in Utah. It examines the moral and spiritual dilemma of excavating ancient Native American ancestral grounds and selling the excavated artifacts for financial gain. Of course, we all remember 2009 in Blanding. Many local residents were indicted for selling stolen Native American artifacts in the black market. That incident resulted in two of the indicted individuals committing suicide, also the informant, one of the individuals indicted being a respected physician in town. Underground is a fictional drama, takes place in central Utah near Price, focuses specifically on four individuals whose lives are personally affected by this same moral and ethical dilemma and the consequences of their choices. And uh, University of Utah law professor and award-winning playwright Deborah 3D joins me for the program today. Welcome to the program. Hello, welcome. Uh, so uh, you've had your eye on, on these issues, I think, for, for quite some time. You, you, you must have been paying a special attention to these events in, in Blanding 2009. I was indeed. Um, and yeah, I have taught um, law and archaeology course uh, for a number of years now. I co-teach it with um, Duncan Medcalf, who is um, the archaeologist and curator of the Utah National History Museum. And this uh, this highlights cultural. It's it's a cultural collision, isn't it? It is. Um, although I think it's more than just a cultural collision. Um, I mean, it, in this country, this problem of what to do with ancient remains comes up in the context of Native American and um, you know Caucasian white settlers. But the same issue comes up all over the world in different contexts. For example, um, Orthodox Jews um, have the same viewpoint as Native Americans and um, object to and won't allow uh, and uh, seek to stop any uh, excavation, archaeological excavation of you know, medieval or earlier Jewish cemeteries, for example. You, uh, I've been reading in a paper that you, that you write, uh, sp- uh, focusing on one specific case, uh, the repatriation of three uh, shields. Right. Very interesting. You talk about the NAGPRA. Uh, tell us what that act is. It's the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. It was passed in 1990, and it's the first piece of federal legislation that specifically protects Native American remains. Um, there had been earlier statutes that, that protect protected archaeological artifacts, of course, many of which are Native American remains. But those earlier statutes didn't uh, provide for repatriation back to the Native American tribes, um, you know, the, who might be claiming the remains as um, those of their ancestors, for example. Um, and you write, the question of who owns the past has a, both a metaphoric and a literal meaning. Of course, we, we know the metaphoric, would, and, and those who, you know, the, the winners. 
right? They tend to write the history, <laughs> and they own the past in that sense. But owning the past also has a literal meaning, a legal and ethical question of who owns, has right of possession of, of these artifacts. And these sorts of cases uh, deal with, with the past in both of those senses. Yes. Uh, so uh, I've been reading uh, and just, just breathtaking some of this stuff. Um, you, you write in this paper about, um, I think it's an, an army officer who wants to get, this is 1860s, I think, he yeah. wants to get a, a remains. Uh, he knows the uh, Indians are know that they sometimes go and, and dig up bodies, so they've buried the body purposely close to camp. He goes, I think, what, the, the, the night after? Right. The, the person died? Yep. Uh, so so this, I guess things like this happened. That's a... That was not an isolated incident. Um, The U.S. Army actually sent out a directive that went to all the forts in the West, uh, instructing um, you know the officers of those forts to collect um, Native American skulls. This was at the time of sort of a belief in phrenology, which was that you could categorize humans by the size and shape of their skulls, and um, what would eventually become the Smithsonian. It wasn't that at that point, but. Um, wanted a collection of Native American skulls. So, you know, this directive went out, and whenever there was, you know, armed conflict, they chopped the heads off of any of the Native Americans who died, as as that incident in the paper recounts. They would dig up graves, even of people they knew. You know, they, these weren't strangers. These weren't ancient remains. These were people that they had known and talked to. Um, dug them up, took the heads, and shipped them all off to Washington D.C. And, and from our perspective now, I mean, that's just—it's horrifying. It was horrifying. <laughs> I was shocked when I read that, but it—it's kind of an indication, uh, you know, the one culture felt like they just had direct ownership of, of the remains of the other culture. Yeah, and it, I mean, there was also. Um, Sort of a belief in the priority or the, the the dominance of science over any you know sort of superstitious beliefs. Um, I mean, it, it, it it's very complicated because in this country it does have a racial aspect, but the reality was is that in the 19th century um, people were digging up. Uh, bodies all the time to sell them to medical schools because there wasn't any official way for medical schools to obtain um, corpses, cadavers for their students to, you know, study and, and uh, you know, practice surgery on. So um, they, they were called resurrection men, and their job was to go out and get dead bodies however they could, and that included digging up, you know, recently... Uh, buried folks. So it, it, it does have a racial aspect, but it it, it goes beyond that mm. as well. Interesting. So uh, this is sort of a, a primacy of science, right? In, yeah. in a way. Uh, now, if if you go forward, of course, um, I, I think probably at some point it became taboo to you know go up and, and, and out and dig up a, a barely. Uh, cold grave, ho- mm-hmm. hopefully so, but uh, it seems like the culture, especially areas like the Four Corners region, the, you know, the, the, the Blanding area, Bluff area, the people, they it became a culture of uh, artifacts are out on private and public lands. Uh, all these things are out there, and we can go and we can go and get them. Right. And, and I guess with sense of entitlement, we have a right to this. 
which of course is also part of a larger problem, which is um, in the West, given that most of the Western states, for example, Utah's, you know, 67% of the land here is owned by some ent- some government entity, um, and yet the people, particularly who live in the rural areas of the state, depend on those public lands for their um, you know, sustenance. I mean, you know, ranchers have leases on public lands. Um, miners have leases on public lands, and it's it's pretty. I mean, it's understandable. It's not right, but it's understandable that after a while you'd start thinking of those lands as yours, mm-hmm. and that you were entitled to do anything you wanted with your lands. Yeah, and, and part of this, I don't know. But in other contexts, I've heard people say it's kind of a protest. You know, a majority of our state is owned by the federal land. That's not right. We should be able to do what we want in in those lands. Yeah, although I I tend to think that that's a justification after the fact. Mm -hmm. In other words, I think you start out thinking about these as your lands and then look for reasons to justify why you should be entitled to treat them as your lands. Mm, Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I... You know, on the other hand, I understand in that um, if you've got an eye for it, it's hard to walk anywhere in southern Utah and not see artifacts. Uh, you know, chips were left over from making arrowheads, arrowheads themselves, pottery shards. Um, and I, I understand, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was even more incredible that things were just laying on the ground. Um, and I understand the thrill of finding something. I mean, it is, it's pretty exciting. I've done it on more than one occasion in my life. Hmm. Um, you know, um, now I put them back <laughs> after I found them, uh, mainly because the thrill is only in that first time. Hmm. You know, if you take it home and you put it in a box in your drawer, you'll never have the thrill of finding it again. And hmm. it just becomes a thing, yeah. you know. We're talking with the University of Utah law professor Deborah Threedy. Uh, she's an award-winning playwright as well, has, uh, has written several other plays. Uh, her latest is called Underground, and it's having its world premiere uh, this evening and running for the next uh, two nights as well at the Kayenta Outdoor Theater in Ivans. It's called Underground, and it treats um, the moral and spiritual dilemma of excavating ancient Native American ancestral grounds and selling those excavated artifacts for financial gain. Uh, we all know the famous case, 2009, Blanding. Three people committed suicide. These were prominent people in the community uh, who, in their minds, were, I think, doing nothing wrong. Some of them maybe knew they you know, had a very uh, yeah. present, present uh. view of what they were doing was wrong because some of them were kind of making a career out of this. But... Uh, uh, we'll talk more about this, and uh, we'll go from NAGPRA and uh, the, the federal crackdown and uh, what it's like when a community is engaging in something that they've done for a long time, and uh, now the laws are being enforced with renewed vigor. What happens when those pressures go forward? We'll talk a little bit more about the play as well following a break. Begin Utah Public Radio's fall membership campaign by becoming a sustaining member or adding a financial gift. Rocky Mountain Power is providing added incentive. They'll contribute $5,000 if we meet our goal of $80,000 by October 12th. Your contribution now at upr.org will be counted 
and next year your membership will renew automatically so we won't have to remind you. Make a difference at upr.org. Click on Support the Station. Thank you. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with Deborah 3D. She's a University of Utah law professor, award-winning playwright. Her latest is premiering tonight at Kayenta Outdoor Theater in Ivans. It's called Underground, and it examines the moral and spiritual dilemma of excavating ancient Native American ancestral grounds and selling the excavated artifacts for financial gain. A similar scenario occurred a few years in Blanding where many local residents were indicted for selling stolen Native American artifacts on the black market. That incident resulted in three suicides, including the informant in the case and a prominent doctor, James Redd. Uh, in fact, uh, later on, his widow uh, sued the federal government for the, what she called overreach in this, this case. I'm not sure where that, uh, where that went. I believe what resulted, uh, Professor 3D, was, was mostly probation for, for most of these people indicted. That's correct. Um, but it really Although, um, the probation was after they pled guilty to a felony, right. which in Utah means that they lost their right to own guns, which can be a significant loss in southern Utah. So take me from NAGPRA, uh, which was, what, about 20 years ago when this had passed? 1990, yep. 1990. Um, and I think probably even after this was passed, uh, people would have continued uh, sort of along a cultural line. Uh, you know, this is what we've al- always uh, done. Let me uh, let me pull quickly up. Here's a quote from the uh, Salt Lake Tribune in uh, 19, uh, whenever this happened. Uh, oh, 2009, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, someone talking about the looters. They're your everyday average neighbor. Some of the men arrested are in their 70s. This is what they used to do as kids. It wasn't illegal. It was just something everyone does in Blanding. There are artifacts everywhere. You can walk out into someone's backyard after good rain and find arrowheads. And uh, this person goes on to say authorities should check their priorities. There are gangsters and drug dealers out there uh, who are actually causing harm. So that that would be one strain of thought. Yes, um, and of course there are a couple of fallacies in that train of thought. One, it's been illegal to collect artifacts off of federal lands since 1906. So pretty much everybody who's alive today who's collected artifacts has broken that law. Mm. Um, It's true that for quite a while after 1906, the federal government never enforced that, but that didn't make it legal. Um, You know, and again, people did it without thinking about it, but in the past we've done a lot of things that we've come to realize are wrong. And collecting artifacts is one of them that we have to realize are wrong. Hmm. And it's wrong on a variety of levels. So far we've been talking sort of about cultural um, disrespect that it shows to Native Americans. But um, from a scientific perspective, um, digging up an artifact, it's not just the loss of the artifact. Um, the The artifact had information encoded in the ground that is lost if that artifact is taken out of the ground without a scientific process behind it. 
Um, unfortunately, most of the artifacts that people collect lose almost all of their scientific value as a result of the improper excavation. Yeah, along those lines, Winston Hurst quoted in the same article, Planning Archaeologist, says of the harm caused here, a fragile and severely damaged record of 13,000 years of human experience that left no written history. So once those artifacts are gone, that, that history is gone. Not just the artifacts, but the, the, the relation that they had to one another in the soil. Um, you know, w- 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 you find an artifact and you don't know what it is, and you have to sort of deduce its purpose from the things you find around it. So was the artifact found uh, in ash from, an, from a hearth? Was it part of cooking, uh, uh, you know, or, you know, was it found with a burial? Was it part of a burial rite? Um, if you pull the artifact out of the ground without scientifically recording its context, its three-dimensional relationship to everything else at the site, you lose the ability to make any inferences about that. I've seen pictures of the artifacts that were seized in uh, the Blanding Raid, and there are things in their pictures of things I have never seen before. And I've even asked other archaeologists, do you know what this is? And their answer is no. And we probably never will know what those things are because they were taken out of the ground without any regard for the context. Mm. You know, in reading about this case, of course, you uh, you get comments on both sides, all sides from from Blanding area. I've not seen comments from Native Americans from the tribes themselves. I, I'm wondering what their what their feelings are. Well, um, you can't um, you can't lump all Native Americans into one category. Um, I mean, there are, today there are archaeologists who are Native Americans. Um, you know, the Navajo Nation has one of the largest staffs of archaeologists in the country, larger than most uh, states. So, you know, some Native Americans' attitude is no different. You know, a Native American who's been trained as an archaeologist, their attitude might have another dimension to it, uh, the cultural, religious uh, aspect, but they're also looking at it through the, the same perspective than any other scientist would. You know, on the other hand, there are some Native Americans, uh, particularly traditional Navajo, who feel it is, um, I mean, sin isn't the right concept, but it's one that us white folks probably can most understand, that it, it's, it's a harm to yourself, to your society, to the world in general, to violate the sanctity of the dead. Um, you know, so, and, and, you know, everything in between uh, you can find among Native Americans. But I'd say the predominant view is that these things were put in the ground for a purpose and they ought to stay there. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, I don't know how early, um, for some people in the, these areas, Four Corners is the one we're talking about specifically, it went for, from, you know, picking up an arrowhead to making a, a nice living uh, selling this to the black market. Yes. Um, I mean, Earl Shumway, uh, who was from Blanding, is, is in, um, was the defendant in a number of um, previous archaeological um, prosecutions, cr- archaeological criminal prosecutions, you know, was very adamant that this was how he was going to make his living and nobody could stop him. You know, he had a right to make his living in any way he wanted to. Um, 
I'm sorry, but drug dealers can use that same line. You know, no, you can't make a living in any way you want to. There are there are rules that you have to follow. Um, but I would say, at least a number of the defendants involved in the Blanding raid, which, by the way, was the direct inspiration for the play. The play is not about the Blanding raid, but when the Blanding raid happened was when I decided to write this play. Mm. Um, a number of them are not, were not really in it for financial gain. Um, the Red family, for example, is a, is a good example of that. They, they, by and large, weren't selling off the artifacts. They had an immense collection of Native American artifacts. They were collecting it for their own enjoyment. Um, you know, so the, the reasons for people digging up sites are, are varied. Uh, it's not always driven by money, although often it is. Mm. Um, and today, unfortunately, it's also driven by drugs. In other words, um, there are people who are excavating Native American sites to sell pots to get money to buy pot. And other drugs. Hmm. Oh, that's yeah. That, that's sad. Um, we're talking with Deborah Threedy. She's a University of Utah law professor and author of a new play. She's an award-winning playwright. Her newest is Underground. It'll have its world premiere this evening, and then going Friday and Saturday evening as well at Kayanta Outdoor Theater in Ivans. And uh, as we've been talking about, uh, as she just said, Underground is not about the Blanding Raid, but it's inspired by by uh, that raid and a crackdown on artifact lootings, the moral and spiritual dilemma of excavating ancient Native American ancestral grounds and selling those excavated artifacts for financial gain. Uh, so have you, I don't know, if you attended rehearsals? Have you, uh, have you have seen not. progress? Okay. Uh, unfortunately, I have a day job up here yeah, in Salt yes. Lake that uh, <laughs> makes it difficult to get down to St. George. Uh, will you be able to attend any of the I'm coming down for the closing night. Okay. Yes. All right. Excellent. Um, so tell us a little bit about Underground. You say it, it, why did you set it near Price? Um, because um, I knew pretty early on um, that the, there's a central artifact, and I don't know if I should say spoiler alert and then say what the artifact is or just leave it that it's a very incredible artifact um, that is is found there. And that artifact came out of the Fremont culture as opposed to the ancestral Pueblan or Anasazi culture, which is the culture in the Blanding area. So because I wanted to use that artifact, I had to relocate um, the, the, the play from the Blanding area, and I moved it up to the Price area, um, also in part because I'm familiar with that area because of the uh, Range Creek which is now the University of Utah's Archaeological Field School. And I go there um, pretty regularly during the summer to teach a class on <clears throat> the legal issues that arise in archaeology. Ironically enough, I was actually at the field school when the Blanding Raid happened. Um, and I was actually sitting at the field school saying to myself, I wish I could write a play about law and archaeology because these are two of my passions and I'd like to find a way to combine them. And then when I got back to Salt Lake, the Blanding Raid was all over the paper. And it was like, mm, I think this is, you know, the universe <laughs> mm. yeah. handing inspiration to me. A, a gift for a playwright. Yep. Uh, I think there are four main characters in Underground. There are. Tell us briefly about those characters. Um, one is an archaeologist. Um, Shannon uh, is her name, and 
Um, she hires um, a local man, Greg, to help um, on a site that she's excavating. Um, Greg is um, an out-of-work uh, miner uh, from the Price area. His wife is actually Navajo, so he's 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 um, he, and and his wife is she lives modern, but she holds traditional beliefs. Um, and then there is Pack, who runs a local trading post, and you know the word is out in. Uh, the rumors are that he'll he'll buy illegally excavated artifacts, um, and in the course, he's not actually looking for it. But in the course of a walk one day, Greg finds this incredible artifact, and then is the rest of the play he's confronted with the the dilemma of what to do with it, um, and you know because of the way I've structured it, you know, we've, we've got Shannon who is talking about the legal and scientific reasons for not uh, taking the artifact, although she, at that point she doesn't know that, that uh, Greg has found this artifact. Uh, the, the Native American viewpoint comes in through his Navajo wife, Danny, who uh, is very upset when he finds the artifact. And then, of course, Pack is there to sort of uh, indicate the other view of, you know, hey, what we were talking about earlier, you know, this stuff's out there, um, you know, who does it hurt to pick up and, and sell, you know, what's the big deal? Hmm. So. Very, very interesting. So that, that's premiering tonight and running uh, Friday and Saturday. Playwright will be down there on uh, on Saturday. We're talking to the playwright, Deborah Threedy, award-winning playwright and University of Utah law professor. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, I'll ask Professor 3D what she thinks about how the feds went about this and what the, this talking specifically about the Blanding case and what the effect has been, whether it had the intended effect of uh, tamping down and uh, perhaps making uh, beyond illegal, making it unacceptable for people to loot artifacts. More following break. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. October is National Depression Awareness Month. Depression is a common but serious illness. Do not be ashamed if you believe or feel that you may have depression. Here are some useful tips when dealing with common symptoms. Get a depression screening done if you are feeling down. It is better to get checked than to sit and wait. The sooner you seek treatment, the better your outlook will be. Treat problems such as insomnia or sleep apnea to help ease your symptoms. Eat healthy. A good diet rich in fruits and vegetables, whole grains, and fish may help battle depression. Learn to walk away. Depression can cloud your judgment. Try taking a deep breath and make decisions about a topic when you begin to feel better. Remember, depression does not have to be a normal part of life. With the right steps and a positive attitude, you can overcome it. This is Nicole Jackson for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. It's more important than ever for Utah Public Radio to increase membership so we can become less dependent on federal and state sources of funding. That's why your financial help and support of our fall membership campaign is vital. The more pledges we receive in the door before the drive gets underway, the more likely we are to succeed. And Rocky Mountain Power will contribute $5,000 if we meet our membership goal of $80,000 by October 12th. Your positive response now at upr.org will be counted. Go to upr.org.
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting Shakespeare's Richard II with two other productions through October 2013 in Cedar City, www.bard.org. We're talking about artifact looting on the program today. It's, it's been illegal for many years, but it's also been a common practice in areas of Utah. We're talking specifically about Four Corners. When we talk about the Blanding case, 2009, uh, the federal government issued indictments against uh, dozens of uh, Blanding residents. uh, And uh, a prominent doctor committed suicide. Two others did as well, including the informant in the case. Uh, It was uh, all over the news. And it brings up issues of morality and ethics with regard to uh, looting of artifacts. Uh, for financial gain. And uh, that's what this play is about, though not set in Blanding, set near Price. It's not specifically about the Blanding case, so that was the inspiration for Deborah 3D's play Underground, which has its world premiere tonight, then runs Friday and Saturday evenings as well in the Kayenta Outdoor Theater in Ivans. Deborah 3D, my guest, for another 10 minutes or so. You're welcome to join this conversation by email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We'd love to get your perspective I want to talk about uh, the way the the uh, federal government went about this. That was all over the news. In fact, the uh, the widow of uh, the doctor who committed suicide uh, filed a lawsuit. And uh, here's the strain of thinking: Okay, it's illegal. All right, you're going to crack down. But uh, you know, some Blanding residents said there were dozens of uh, SUVs or federal vehicles in the driveway. Uh, you know, guns drawn. Um, you go in, and this prominent man, Sunday school teacher, prominent physician, then feels uh, that he that he has to commit suicide. It's a, a bit of an overreach, some are saying. Um, yes, some people do say that. Um, I do want to point out that this was not the first time the Reds had been prosecuted for illegally excavating um, ancestral Pueblo remains. They had been caught doing this about 15 years ago, and prosecuted at the time, um, which, I mean, I, you know, it, it's tragic that he took his life, but um, they, of all people down in Blanding, were on notice that times had changed and what used to be acceptable was no longer acceptable. Um, so that adds another layer to it. Um yeah, at at some level, I'm personally troubled by you know the incredible show of um, force that was used to arrest people who, by and large, I mean I think there were one or two exceptions, but most of these people had no uh, criminal background, had no violent crimes, you know, in their background. Um, I've talked with the prosecutors uh, uh, in the case, and um, we might feel it was an overreaction, but they were actually doing it exactly by the book. So it wasn't like they were coming down any harder on this and and these people than they would in any other kind of a sting um, operation. Um, Not too long ago, a a couple weeks ago, there was a a man here in Salt Lake talking about, uh, he gave a presentation about um, how our police department 
across the country at both federal and state levels have moved more towards an army model um you know so that in that, that that's a fundamental change in sort of how um criminal prosecutions are handled and i think the blanding reg is a perfect example of what he was talking about this was more like you know, a, a, a commando raid in Iraq than, you know, what you would think about happening as a result of nonviolent property crime in, in this country. Yeah, you, you're talking about Radley Balco, I believe. I had a chance to interview him for the, for the program. It's, uh, it seems like it's a definite trend. Law enforcement will tell you that it's, it's for protection of, you know, if you go in with overwhelming force, you don't get as much resistance and right. the, your officers are safer. But uh, yep. uh, this really... Uh, you know, I wasn't in Blanding. I haven't been in Blanding. Uh, I'm, this has got to hit a community like that hard. Yes, um, it's it 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 still has. I mean, it's had um, and you know, and it's it's had some unforeseen consequences. I mean, well, let's face it: the federal government was never popular in Blanding. <laughs> it just isn't in Southern Utah, um, and and this certainly hasn't won them any friends, you know. Uh, um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's a tough one to, to deal with because really what you do want to do is change people's attitudes um, about uh, the, the collecting of artifacts. Um, I mean, it, you, you mentioned Winston Hurst earlier. I, I've heard him say something like he knows of 20,000 archaeological sites in San Juan County, which is where Blanding is located, and not a one of them hasn't been looted. Hmm. I mean, that, you know, it's, it's the incremental effect of everybody going out and collecting a, a few pots, and some people collecting many more than a few pots. I mean, there are a million artifacts that were seized as a result of this raid on 23 people. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, th- that's a lot. It indicates, you know, the the problem that probably why the feds uh, cracked down. I wonder, do you think this has had the intended effect? I think the, the what, what the federal government was trying to do is to send a message that, you know, as we all know, there's the illegal and then there's the illegal. I mean, right. there's speeding and there's you know, and uh, the the message out that the, this is truly illegal and you will be prosecuted if if we catch you. Um, if you talk to the feds, they think they've sent that message. Um, I'm I'm kind of just hanging out on the sidelines, waiting to see, you know, because the proof will be in the pudding. We'll see what happens. Is, is does this stop being culturally acceptable in Southern Utah? Um, and I mean, I I personally have seen a shift because you will talk to a lot of people who say, oh, you know, my dad used to collect artifacts, but that's when it wasn't you know, illegal. I mean, they're wrong on that, but um, the point is that they've recognized now that it's illegal, and what they were saying is it wasn't thought of as illegal back then. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I think things are changing um, by and large. In a lot of cases, I think it's too late. In other words, the damage has been done and cannot be undone. But for what little um, is out there and hasn't been looted. I think it's really important for um, us as a society to recognize that we ought to be leaving it alone. Hmm. Um, and again, I, I look at it from a scientific historical perspective. Um, um, you know, that's information that 
could be important to us. We don't know because we don't know what it is, and it shouldn't be stolen from us by people who are doing it either for financial gain or for their own amusement. Hmm. Um, you know, and of course, the Native Americans would say, "You need to leave it alone because you need to leave it alone. It's not yours." You do an interesting, I don't know if you still do this class, um, it's an interdisciplinary class, law and anthropology, yeah. Yeah. and you have anthropology students, I think, play the roles of land managers, archaeologists, and the like. Your law students play lawyers, and you, you interact. I wonder, I don't know if this class came up after this blanding incident. Or have you been uh, doing it ongoing? Or I believe I had, no, I had offered it before. Mm-hmm. Are there any changes due to that in, in how you run the class? Mm, not really. Mm-hmm. You're, no, um, I mean, it, it, it's one of the things we talk about um, in the class. Um, you know, it, 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 but it, it's funny, over, over the, you know, originally I would talk about the Shumway prosecutions, which were from the 80s. Then I used to talk about the red, the first red prosecution, which was from the 90s, and then you know now I have the Blanding raid uh, to talk about as examples of um, enforcement of archaeological criminal laws. It's interesting because this is an interaction between in the class and you know in in life, and I'm sure that's what you're going for in the class between law and all of these other forces dealing with with anthropology and archaeology. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, uh, you have in this paper that I've been making reference to, you talk about the role of storytelling in repatriation of these items. I don't know what the process will be or has been in repatriation of the items in the Blanding case. I guess it will be under under NAGPRA? Is that how it it will be, yes. So t- tell me a little bit more about uh, the storytelling. And, and this gets us into, sometimes you have uh, intertribal competition for, or, or disputes, right? Right. Actually, not very often. Um, again, the predominant uh, view is probably that um, anything that's been taken out of the ground needs to be put back in the ground. Um, I wrote the case about what um, are sometimes referred to as the pectal shields or the capital reef shields, um, specifically because it was very unusual in that the shields were not grave goods. They were not found um, in a grave, and we know this because Bishop, Bishop Pecto, um, back in the late 1920s, found these shields. He and his wife found these shields, and he wrote about it. So we know exactly um, where it was found, you know, the date it was found, they, they were found, and what they were found with. Um, and uh, for a long time, they were on, or at least two of the three shields were on display at the Capitol Reef National Park, and I myself had, had seen them there. And um, no one thought that NAGPRA applied to them because NAGPRA applies to human remains, grave goods, in other words, things that were buried with a human set of remains, sacred objects, um, which is very narrowly defined to mean objects that are needed today for traditional ceremonies being performed today, and then objects of cultural patrimony. Um, no one is quite sure what that last category uh, includes. It, has, it was not well defined in the statute, and there really hasn't been a case sort of testing what the meaning of that was. But uh, the assumption was that these shields belonged to somebody and were was their personal you know, weapons, which wouldn't have fit into any of the NAGPRA categories. 
Um, and it wasn't until the mid to late 90s that the archaeologist at Capitol Reef was told by one of her informants that she needed to talk to the Navajos about the shields. Um, and when she did go talk to the Navajos about the shields, um, an, an absolutely incredible story came out. And under NAGPRA, um, oral history from Native Americans is given as much weight as scientific data or DNA testing or anything like that. It, the, the statute specifically includes oral history as one of the things to look at when you're trying to decide whether or not an item needs to be repatriated under the statute. So this is the story, um, and it was told by John Holliday, who is um, a very well-respected traditional um, Hatale, um, you know, medicine man uh, among the Navajo, but he's also very well known and respected among anthropologists because um, he has the unique um, and, and I think prescient opinion that the best way to preserve uh, traditional knowledge today is to get white people to write about it. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> that you know creates a record that's going to last. So he's very willing um, to share his traditional um, knowledge to the extent that uh, that you know the sacred ceremonies allow him to do so um, with the anthropologists. So this is a man who's highly respected by everyone who knows him. He's not a man who makes up stories. Um, the story he told was that his, uh, I believe it was his great-grandfather, uh, was in charge of taking care of three sacred shields, which had been made about 1500. And um, this was in 18, you know, the mid-1860s, at the time when the U.S. Army was rounding up Navajos and sending them off to um, Bosca Redondo in um, New Mexico, uh, basically a concentration camp. And his great-grandfather um, and another man decided to hide these shields so that they couldn't be found and taken by the U.S. Army. And they deliberately left Navajo land um, and went, and, and the, the story he got from his grandfather was that they went to a place between Boulder Mountain and the Henry Mountains, um, and they hid the, sh the three shields. Um, then one of the men died, and when the other man went back to try to find the shields after um, the Navajos were released by the U.S. Army, he couldn't find them again. Um, you know, I mean, it's... It, and. John Holliday believes that these were those three shields. Um, and, you know, I don't know whether they were those three shields. I mean, it could be an incredible coincidence. But um, the shields were found in the area between Boulder Mountain and the Henry Mountains, which, however, is a huge area. So, uh, you know, that um, the, the, they're just a, a, a lot of sort of corroborating evidence that suggests that that story was more was not just a fanciful story. Um, you know, I, I, I think you can still wonder whether these are those three shields, but um, I think the credibility of John Holliday 
suggests that, in fact, three shields were buried somewhere out there in the desert, and maybe these are those shields. Yeah, interesting. We're, we're out of time. I, I just want to... Uh just to just briefly mention here at the end uh, this from from your uh, your paper claiming the shields is what it's called um it's this illustration of sort of the the, the family traditions that uh, build up around looting uh Ephraim Pechtel and his wife that you mentioned in 1926 they went out found the uh, found this uh, area there was some treasure there they they thought and they went back and got their children, and some neighbors mm-hmm. decided to come along. So this was kind of a, it's a family outing. So there's there's family tradition, and and that's I think what uh, what the federal government is trying to trying to stamp out there. In any case, uh, if you'd like to hear more about these issues or see see it on stage, you have the opportunity to do this. Um, and the play is called Underground. The playwright is Deborah Threedy. She's a University of Utah law professor, and her play Underground is going to be performed a world premiere tonight. Then it runs Friday and Saturday as well at Cayenta Outdoor Theater in Ivans. Deborah 3D, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, coming up is the StoryCorps, and we'll have, of course, 10 o'clock, the Zesty Garden with Brian Earl. Hope you'll stay tuned. For producer Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Partners in Business 39th Annual Operational Excellence Conference, designed to help inspire organizations to embed the necessary principles to achieve excellence. October 2nd and 3rd. Details at partners.usu.edu. Dr. Zorba Pastor from Zorba Pastor on Your Health is coming to Utah. And you're invited to his free presentation, Living a Long, Sweet Life, at the Logan Regional Hospital on Thursday, October 17th. The presentation includes lunch, but space is limited, so register now at upr.org. Zorba Pastor will headline other events in Logan and Moab. You can find out more about those at upr.org. Zorba Pastor's visit to Logan is sponsored by Intermountain Logan Regional Hospital. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. My name is Terry Kane. I'm the current CEO of Dixie Regional Medical Center. I'm 58 years of age. I'm here in St. George, Utah, with Ron Metcalf. And I'm Ron Metcalf. I'm uh, age 57. And you think back on the history of St. George, even reading about the, the pioneers that were, that were sent here originally and all the hardships that they went through. And it was not a desirable place to live. I can remember when we came here, I was 12 years old and it was in 1967. I can remember this was just a small community. It looked dry and desolate. As we came down here, we, we enjoyed the community and got involved uh, in the community. My father had a local mortuary here. Back then, the hospital was was known as Dixie Memorial Hospital. It was very small, maybe 12 beds. Uh, Don't even recall they had a little emergency room. I remember the driveway that went up to it with some stairs and then a a long ramp. And uh, uh, but back then there there was no uh, ambulance service uh, available in our area or county. It was just too small, and so they asked the mortuaries to provide the ambulance service simply because the mortuaries had the equipment, they had the vehicles, and had stretchers you know, that they would use in their profession. And this lent itself to, you know, being able to, you know, help people when when the need arose uh, in an emergency. Being in my teenage years, it was exciting for me, you know, to go and help him. 
I remember going on a lot of situations and seeing a lot of things and having my eyes wide open, and, and it was quite interesting. Later on, my, my father uh, got a, uh, I think uh, we used a station wagon, and he had some panels made on the side to cover the windows for some privacy in there. And later on, he purchased a resuscitation machine that would help people breathe and had to get certified on it. And that was, that was big at the time. I don't think there was an EMT rating anywhere inside or just first aid training, I think, mainly uh, what was provided. And, you know, we had uh, kits and, and bandages and things that he got trained on, later got a police radio in the, in the vehicle, which, you know, helped with communications. And uh, back then, uh, that was cutting edge, back in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, trying to do all we could, you know, to, to serve, uh, in, in the case of an emergency, our community. Uh, I remember there was one time my father delivered twins and uh, came home after that call and was all excited, you know, got them to the hospital and they, they were okay and, and it was exciting. But I also can remember some, some times where we would go on, on car accidents uh, and, and other unusual circumstances where a man was shot and, you know, go pick him up and, and go on the, the, the vehicle accidents. And, of course, it was fun as a teenager to, to go fast, you know, and, and uh, the mm -hmm. lights and, and uh, the excitement of that. But when you got there and saw the, uh, the, the accident, you know, it, it kind of brought the realities of life back home. And, uh, but, it, but it was nice to see him, you know, and be able to help. Uh, get those people to the hospital. Uh, you know, those were interesting times. Uh, what a contrast between now and then. Uh, you know, I, I remember a few times taking some patients in. Uh, one particular time, a, a, a woman that was uh, pregnant, and, uh, and we took her in and, 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 and later on uh, recalled that she did not make it. And, and I, you know, how many people were not helped appropriately? How many people didn't even heal properly, but they did heal? Uh, because we just, you know, didn't, we weren't a, a, a big enough community, didn't have the expertise and the ability to take people, take care of people like we are today. Mm -hmm. you, you look at the pain and suffering that uh, is resolved here at Dixie Regional Medical Center as compared to then, you know, the, there's just no comparison. It's like night and day. It's like a, we're uh, very fortunate to have what we have here, so. You know, Intermountain Healthcare took over in 1975. It's a not-for-profit system. And we've been working together, you and I, and our employees and physicians, to help, as you say, educate our community that we are not an average healthcare facility in a town of now up to 100,000. There's a lot of rural America between St. George and our next big city, Provo in Utah, which is some 350 miles to the north of us. And then Las Vegas, who is just a world apart, the way uh, healthcare is provided there, at least today in 2013, is very different than what we experience here in Utah with the Intermountain System. The state of Utah in general is the number one state in the country for performing at the highest level of quality at the lowest possible cost. People go above and beyond what they need to do in order to take care of the community. It makes, makes a difference. And so I think here, not only do we have exceptional health care, but we have exceptional people. So I would like to thank you for your governance as our governing board chairman and for all the people in the community you represent that gives us the opportunity to serve and to make a difference. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio.
Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at dixieregional.org. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD 1, 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD 1, 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD 1, 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD 1, 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD 1, 91.5 Logan. Listening to Utah Public Radio, Tom Williams with Nora Zambrino and Brian Earle. Of course, it's the Fall Fun Drive, and or it's the membership drive. Membership I don't know what we're drive. calling it. It's we're trying to raise money uh, for the station, and uh, I take it as um, as a personal honor if you would call right now and pledge in support of Access Utah. We uh, we put a lot of work into the program and uh, try to give you a good program day in and day out. And here's where we're coming to you and asking: Did you like that? Did it enrich your life? Uh, conversation today or whatever else you have heard, it does cost money to put on the program. We're trying to recoup some of that cost at 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Special incentive for this membership drive for you to call is that every pledge helps us get a little closer to a contribution that will be made by Rocky Mountain Power. If we meet our goal of $80,000 by October 12th, they will kick in $5,000. So every membership uh, contribution that comes to us helps us move closer to that total and and adding some, some really needed dollars to help us infuse back into the programming that you enjoy here every day. 800-826-1495 is the number to call us at, toll free, or you can go online to upr.org. Make a contribution, become a member of this station, and help support uh, programming that makes you more uh, enriched. It informs you about things that are happening closer to home right here on Access Utah the interview that you just did with Deborah 3D was uh, was wonderful, and I and I'm familiar with Deborah's work. I've seen uh, her work presented in Salt Lake City, and always enjoyed it. And um, it's just one example of the kinds of things that you're trying to do here every day on Access Utah, Tom. Yeah, it's 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 so interesting to be able to because we all knew the you know we read the headlines. Know that unless you live in Blanding, you you know you're not involved with that Blanding case, but. Uh, to be able to talk about all of these issues involved, uh, something that impacts all of us, is uh, that is a, an extraordinary opportunity we have every day here on Access Utah. And uh, so we, we put out a program that we hope you enjoy. We realize you have many other um, places you can go uh, talking about the media landscape, but uh, we appreciate, I really appreciate you choosing Access Utah. And here's the opportunity for you to uh, go a little beyond that and, <clears throat> excuse me, and support it financially. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can go to upr.org, upr.org. And thank you 